Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green, and in this episode, we're going to be looking at not only interreligious understanding, but also its flip side of interreligious misunderstanding by a case study of the ways in which Christian missionaries and their Muslim respondents discussed their different and distinct religions in the age of print. Usually in Akbar's chamber, we try to further the process of interreligious understanding that, after all, was the inspiration that the podcast takes from the original Akbar's chamber, the room of discussion of interreligious debates, discussions, explorations at the court of the Mughal Emperor Akbar. But of course, whether in the 17th century or the 20th and 21st century, Interreligious understanding has always been accompanied by interreligious misunderstanding. Apologetics and polemics have been at least as common a part of the landscape of cross-cultural interreligious discussions as more liberal and ecumenical interactions. And of course, that's not surprising. Different religions have crucial foundational theological differences, which for believers are important, meaningful, indeed foundational and fundamental. Of course, for Muslims, indeed, the message of the Quran is one that rejects the divinity of Jesus. Jesus is respected as a messenger, as one of the great prophets sent by God, but he's not considered as a son of God by Muslims or indeed by the foundational message of the Quran. Subsequently, the notion of a trinity, that God is in three parts, the Christian notion of a trinity, is another foundational point of Christianity, or at least most forms of Christianity, that has been rejected by Muslims, indeed, by the Quran, in favour of, again, a foundational Muslim context, concept of not the trinity of God, but the unity of God, the doctrine of Tawheed. Well, moving beyond, as it were, these foundational theological distinctions, Christians and Muslims, of course, have lived alongside one another ever since early Islamic history and continue to do in different parts of the Middle East today. What we've been looking at in this episode, though, is a particular case study from the age of print, when printing and indeed translation into Arabic spread across the Middle East in the second half of the 19th century and the earlier decades of the 20th century. We'll be looking in particular at an extremely important figure, Rashid Ridda, who lived between 1865 and 1935, often being considered as the founder of Salafism. So important is he that we previously devoted an episode of Akbar's Chamber to looking at his famous magazine, Al-Manar, The Lighthouse, that ran from 1898 to 1935. That's the focus of the Akbar's Chamber episode entitled The Magazine That Took Salafism to the World. Well, in this episode, we'll be looking at the way Ridda and his various informants, both Christian and Muslim, and indeed in one important case, Baha'i, shaped Ridda's understanding and, in some ways, misunderstanding of Christianity, responding as he was to the many Christian missionary organisations that had been active in the Middle East for several centuries by the time Ridda himself was born in Lebanon in 1865. Ridda was not a unique figure in this way. In the 19th century, there were various Muslims who were interacting, debating, and responding in print to Christian missionary critiques of Islam. One of the figures we'll be seeing propping up 
in the background and indeed informing Ridder's own understanding of Christianity is the Indian Muslim scholar Rahmatullah Karanawi, who died in 1891 after several decades of discussions and debates and responses to Christian missionaries, not least in his major Arabic printed work. But though our focus then will be on many of the interreligious polemics and these misunderstandings as much as understandings between different religions, we should recognise throughout the background that the continued coexistence of Muslims and Christians in the Middle East was really part of this picture as well, beneath, as it were, the level of print and ideas and polemics. And something even more subtle, and I hope more interesting than that, that we'll be exploring, is the way in which between Europe and the Middle East, there was actually a Muslim-Christian codependence as different intellectuals, Christian and Muslim, Christian reformists or indeed anti-Christian European secularists and scientists, along with Muslim reformists who were critical of their own tradition at the same time as they were responding often critically to Christianity. There was then this codependence of Europeans and Arabs, of Muslims and Christians in their shared, albeit very distinct, searches for truth. Well, leading me in this discussion is Professor Omar Amr Riyadh, who is a professor of Arabic and Islamic studies at the University of Leuven in Belgium and the director of the Leuven Centre for the Study of Islam, Culture and Society. He's the author of Islamic Reformism and Christianity, a critical reading of the works of Muhammad Rashid Ridda and his associates, which was published by Brill in 2009 and which is available open access on the Brill website via the link on the Akbar's Chamber text. Hello, Amr. Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Welcome, Nail. Good to see you. And you too. It's been a long time since we met yeah. uh, in Leiden a few years ago now. Indeed, indeed. Well, today we're going to be talking about uh, a question, a theme that's really at the heart of Akbar's chamber of interreligious, intercultural understanding. But today we're actually, in, in some ways, looking at the, the flip side uh, or the larger, larger story of that process of not only understanding, but also misunderstandings. And we're looking particularly about interactions between Christian missionaries and particularly the response of, uh, of Muslim scholars in the late 19th, early 20th century. Um, because of course, it's important to recognize that, that, that naturally different religions have different theological principles that, that, that because they're different and such uh, are from such foundational principles of religion, whether Jesus was an incarnate messiah or whether he was a messenger in the christian and muslim foundational sort of theological principles of course this this in a sense sets some proper natural limits on uh, on on kind of if not religious understanding but of course of, of a religious agreement so what we'll be looking then at in, in in this discussion is at a particular historical case study of late 19th early 20th century egypt and the arab world taking into consideration then these theological differences, as well as the search for understanding and the potential for misunderstanding then that emerged in this period. So to start us off then, Amada, and sort of to set the scene, can you tell us about the context then within which Muslim intellectuals began debating Christianity and indeed debating with Christian missionaries in the decades either side of 1900? Yes, uh, thank you, uh, Nile. once again. I, I think if we look at the Muslim missionary, I mean, just Christian missionary uh, contacts, we should get back a bit, not only in the uh, half of the 19th century, but a bit earlier, because Christian missionaries have just started in the, let's say, the early modern period in the, in the Muslim world and the Arab East, but actually primarily not to convert Muslims in the beginning. This was not the case in its beginning, but they wanted actually to convert Orthodox Christians to either Protestantism or Catholicism. 
in some of these uh, missionary literature you read that they say the, the label the, the Orthodox Church as the rotten church of the East that we should reform it and and it should it should get more rationalized the, the idea of ethnography from a Protestant point of view this is actually the, 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 the prime case later those missionaries discovered that not only Muslims but also Jews living in the Middle East and they, they started to change the strategy to learn the languages the, 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 the local languages in order to reach out to those Muslims, in order to convince them of the truthfulness of the Bible as they, they saw it. So here you see, you see actually two tracks, one first to reform the church and then discover the Muslims and Jews and start that. And from the half 19th century, you see that, that Muslims started to react and why we, we have this, um, I mean, just magnificent amount of literature that thanks also to printing. I mean, just like, you know, it was not only in manuscripts in, in a few uh, uh, copies that are just only, only in, in a, a specific circle, but printing has helped also this increase of these Muslim reactions to Christian missions. And also for sure, I mean, just the literature, the missionary literature was also printed from India to Egypt to, to Cyprus to, to Malta. So, so here, here you have this case that, that the increasing uh, anti-Muslim literature within missionary circles triggered the Muslim responses to that. And here I would just make this, this point very clear. I think this, this idea of polemics and apologetic to, to it did not really help in the rapprochement or the just like, you know, the close understanding between both religions because they complicated the debates. It's not the traditional uh, critique of Christian writers in medieval Europe against Islam. And it's not only the Muslim responses to it if they perceived it, but it's now it increased and complicated the whole issues because it's, it's coupled on the one hand with what we know out the higher biblical criticism, which Muslim uh, writers used in order to attack Christianity from within and missionaries themselves used also some of the Orientalist. Uh, I mean, just critique or critical studies of Islam in order to attack Islam also with its own weapons. So as, as both parties have, have just uh, claimed in the debate that we should, you know, counter argue the enemy, in that case, the polemical enemy with its own weapon by studying the sources, getting critiques and using it in the, in the lashing between both sides. And I think this have complicated the issues and it's still going on. I mean, just like, you know, if you browse the internet and you see the amount of polemical uh, responses from both parties, it's really amazing. And it's also, it has remnant of these medieval traditional discourses against both religions or, or, or against each others and also these modern approaches which both parties have used. That's a really important point, uh, Amr, that, that as you say, I mean, it's this distinction between polemics and apologetics. We're in the realm of sort of text here and sort of intellectual production. And, and as you say, really the, the heightened printing out, output, the massive output of, of European Christian missionaries in, in Arabic and indeed many other Middle Eastern languages, including Middle Eastern Christian languages such as Syriac. And then the spread of printing uh, among Middle Eastern Muslims. And then the sort of the, the, the output then of the response back from Muslim scholars. But that point of, of this is the realm of politic, polemics and apologetics, this sort of textual and printed realm. It's important that we recognize this from the outset because at the same time, there's already sort of, and has been for centuries, of coexistence within the Middle East of, of obviously very old, very ancient Christian minorities that, who were indeed in some regions of the Middle East still Christian majorities in some places into the period we're looking at, you know, up to the 1900s. So, so can you sort of set the scenes then in which a figure such as uh, uh, Muhammad Abdu, the great sort of Muslim reformer, lives from 1849 to 1905, and particularly his follower, his successor, Rashid Ridda, who yeah. lives between 1865 and 1935, and the founding of his really important, as it were, proto-Salafi or uh, it's another issue we didn't get into. We've discussed this in another, another podcast. His journal, Al-Manar, The Lighthouse. Can you sort of introduce how, how Abdul, and particularly Ridda, sort of, you know, get involved in, in these interactions with the Christian missionaries in uh, Egypt? Yeah, and I, 
I'm very grateful to you that now you you just like you know you refreshed my memory about uh, that book which I have written just it was published in 2009 on the basis of my dissertation and now just like you know thinking about it once again. Um, so if we look at this triangle of Islamic reform starting from Jamaluddin Lavrani, Muhammad Abdu, and then Rida in, 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 in the same line, we find actually different approaches to the question of Christianity. We have to understand that something also regarding your point that you have also these frictions between missionaries and Muslim writers. But Muslim writers also in, in many cases were aware that writing about Western Christianity of those missionaries would also uh, touch the, the indigenous Christian fellow citizens. And therefore they were very, very careful. I mean, just in the case of Rida of Abdu Fabani, just very careful in order just like not to tread upon that because they know, okay, if we criticize the Bible, it means that we also trying to defame it as a holy scripture to our brothers in, 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 in society. But anyhow, uh, if, if you look at the three, Afghani, in my view, was not really concerned about missionaries, and he did not write very intensively about them, extensively about them. So this is one. For, Red, for Abdu, his situation was different as a grand mufti of Egypt. He did not write extensively again about critical, uh, critical writers, writings about the Bible, but he was involved in some cases of conversion of Muslims to Christianity. To mention one example, there was a, a, a student of Al-Azhar whose name was Mahmoud. This is what we know about him. And he converted to Christianity and uh, his family came from Palestine in order to his father, came to Cairo in order to get him out of the country. And here you find Lord Cromer was involved in the whole issue and Abdu had to interfere in order just like, you know, so Lord, Lord Cromer is calling for a kind of religious freedom that everybody is free in that country to adapt whatever religion it is. But the father is very angry. Al-Azhar also is very cautious about this and Abdu had to step in in order just to solve and mediate between that. So you have him in, in that case. He, he was much interested also in in, in an um, organization which is called Jamiyat al-Taqrib bayn al-Adyan, the society uh, of uh, rapprochement or coming close together with religions w w in which, for example, the British uh, uh, priest uh, is Isaac Teller was member, some other Jews. So he was really interested in this idea of harmony amongst religions. The only case we see Abdu writing about Christianity in a book which he has published in two or three years before his death, which is Al-Islam Islam and Christianity in, in the light of science and civilization, which was actually a response not to missionaries, but to Farah Anton, a Syrian Christian, the editor of Al-Jami'a newspaper, who was, uh, you know, um, adapting the ideas of somebody like the French uh, philosopher Ernest Renan about Islam and science. So he reacted actually to another discourse. It was not written by missionaries, but a Christian, Syrian Christian, who were, were uh, influenced by the ideas of somebody like, like, uh, like Renan. But Rida, it's, it's the most extensive case we have reacting to missionaries, uh, not only to missionaries, but also to his Christian, to some Christ Eastern Oriental Christian critiques of Islam. And this has been put in, in the, the Almanar magazine, which you have referred to, which has been published in about uh, 37 years from 1889, uh, sorry, 98, when Rashid Rida migrated to Cairo, sorry, till his death in 1935. But we have in 1940, that Hassan al-Banna, the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood has published, has issued four issues of Al-Manar five years after Rida's death. So, so, so thinking about uh, the relationship between Rashid Rida and the Muslim Brotherhood, this is strictly, I mean, clear, but we have to problematize the question because if we look at Al-Manar itself as a magazine, Al-Banna established the Muslim Brotherhood from 28 uh, and Rashid Rida died in, in 35. So we are talking about now almost seven years of the lifetime of Al-Manar. And if we check Al-Manar, Neither Hassan al-Banna nor the Muslim Brothers are mentioned in the magazine by Rashid Rada. So it raises the question, was the Muslim Brotherhood not very important in that time in order to attract Rida's attention? While Hassan al-Banna attends his classes, Rashid Rida was a friend of his father. His father published even one or two books in Al-Manar Publishing House. 
or did Hassan Banna find, find success somewhere else? But this is just a, a footnote in order just like, you know, to, to, to understand the relevance of Rashid Rida to the modern discourse about uh, Islamic reform. And, that, and that's an important sort of segue, isn't it? Because, because the founding of, of, of the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, particularly in the city of, of Ismailia in, 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 as you said, the 1920s, is a direct kind of organizational, if not so much necessarily intellectual reaction to the Swedish Christian Protestant missionaries who, exactly. who were, you know, educating children and, of course, uh, trying to broadly sort of uh, convert Muslims as well. So there is that sort of interplay with with missionaries, with the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood. But as you're saying, that that isn't necessarily sort of the, the same venture that Ridder is involved in with his newspaper and his more theological, intellectual, interpretive uh, uh, ventures. Yeah, but this is this is true. But I have also to add something. Reading Rida's archive, which will come to it just in a minute, hopefully, uh, if you read his first diaries, Rida's diaries, you find that uh, when he came to Egypt, he traveled all over the country in order to establish uh, uh, units of activism. So going to the south of Egypt, in villages, in small towns, collecting people around him. Uh, trying uh, to, to make just units which are connected to each other in jamiyat, in societies. What is very interesting, when you read this archival materials and you think, you see that Hassan al-Banna is using the same vocabulary, which Rasid said, for example, an active worker within the, the societies, of an active actor. Uh, you say that just like, you know, you start with a representative of that. So the whole organizational networking, it's it's Rida's, I think, mechanism. And I think Hassan Banna was affected by that, by the whole the whole idea of societies, the whole idea which Rida really uh, opted for as, as a, a, a solution in order to activate Muslim societies, not only on the theological level, but also on that organizational level. Um, so, so this is actually something, and, and you are right, I mean, just like, you know, that Hassan al-Banna or the Muslim Brotherhood started to make these uh, uh, societal projects uh, in order to help orphans, uh, poor families who were actually targeted by missionaries in Ismailia and elsewhere in the port cities. And, and also we shouldn't forget that in the early 30s, uh, the, 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 the debate about missionaries was just reaching the high level because of, of the weakness of the Waft party <laughs> ruling party at this time and the, the oppositional parties tried to strike against the the, the 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 ruling party by getting all these convergent cases of muslim orphan girls in, in, in all over egypt in order just like you know to trigger the debate about missionaries and their presence in in, in egypt and and the muslim brotherhood just filled in this vacuum by getting into the the the, the, the projects which the government did not work and this is typical for the muslim brotherhood in its all all history just by replacing the government in these social projects and social initiatives in order to help the poor the orphans etc et well this is really helpful amir because it's it what you're saying is kind of reminding us of just how incredibly significant the figures we're we're, we're discussing here today were whether whether rashid ridda himself in terms of his ideas but also this this magazine, Al Manar, which is is read, it's published in Arabic, as you said, for 37 years, and then a few years afterwards by the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood, and it's read from by Arab communities in Latin America, from Buenos Aires to 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 New York, the Lebanese diaspora there, throughout various parts of North Africa, not so much of the Ottoman Middle East, but but through a lot in colonial India, Southeast Asia, the Muslims of Russia. I mean, it is really the the world's first worldwide Muslim newspaper or indeed sort of public uh, uh, organ of the public sphere. And similarly, uh, Hassan al-Banna, of course, founds the Muslim Brotherhood, one of the, if not the most influential uh, Muslim and ultimately Islamist organization, political Muslim organization of the 20th century. <laughs> What, of course, we, we, we're, we're touching on, on here is, is, is your extraordinary research with Ridder's archive, which you sort of brought to life, the family archive, as well as several other family archives that really sort of are delivering insights that, you know, as you just mentioned, of this interaction between or the 
the adoption by by Hassan al Banna of, of, of Ridder's vocabulary and, and, and groundwork, really. Um, it's extraordinarily important uh, work. So can I ask you then, based upon you know, your research with the hundreds and hundreds of uh, issues of Al-Manar, as well as Ridder's other published and private papers in his archive, his family archive, what were Ridder's sources of information then for his mm understanding of Christianity, when he's in responding to the missionaries and, and their polemics, where is he getting his ideas, his information, his understanding and his misunderstanding from? Yeah, uh, this is a very interesting question. I mean, just to start with, uh, you, you pinpointed very interesting idea that Rida, that his magazine reached Muslims in South America to, to China, uh, as Rida is called in that epoch as a print global mufti so a print mufti just like you know that his ideas reached even south africa i mean just like Rida, like Abdul before but but he was read all over the place what is interesting that his ideas were also translated in tatar languages in chinese in malay languages and interesting in in the malay case you find al-manar and then the malay students would say al-munir as, as, as we see in, in the work of our colleague Michael Lafan, that he, he, he emphasized all, all these things. So here you have a person with this magazine. We, we depended on, on the magazine for many years in order to understand this network. But when I stumbled upon the archive, the archive, I, I'm, I'm not the only, the first one to use it, but it has been used by two persons, but mainly in Arabic. Therefore, the, the, the uh, prominence of Rida's archive in Western academia was not that used. The first one is Sheikh uh, Sharabasi, who was a scholar of Al-Azhar, who wrote his PhD dissertation about Rashid Rida. And Sheikh Sharabasi, as a grandson of Rashid Rida, told me, got the archive, the physical parts of the archive, in his house in order to study from the father, the son of Rashid Rida. The father, the, 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 and then his grandson, Fuad Rida, who is now living in the States, he chased Sheikh al-Sharabasi in order to get as many as he could. So he saved it. Otherwise, it has been, it would have never been, been lost. This is the first case. The second case to use it was Fahd al-Shawabka, a Jordanian historian who got his PhD at Ain Shams University. And he used the archive uh, because he was talking about the political impact of pan-Islamism. This was his dissertation. I remember when I was preparing my PhD proposal many, many years ago, it was in 2003, 2004, I made a hypothesis without really knowing that it's somewhere. I said the archive of Rashid is somewhere, but where and how, Allahu A'lam. <laughs> so I didn't really have a clue <laughs> where. And, and to my big luck, I was phoned by a colleague, Dr. Said Faris, now uh, professor at Al-Azhar, uh, just phoning me that he, he met the secretary of the grandson of Rashid Rida who is hosting his grandfather's archive. Can you imagine just a, as a PhD student, my, my head cracked. <laughs> so I went there, I remember in 2004, 2005, it's a, it was a, a very big uh, flat in Nasr city on the 14th floor. And, 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 and it was empty, only you have the old furniture. And then the, the secretary, I mean, just I phoned his grandson who was very, very nice. And, and he allowed me to get into his house in order to see the archive. So he, the secretary opened the door and they said here in the cupboard, you can just look. You should see, you find carton boxes and you open it and really tears were just like, you know, I, I couldn't imagine myself seeing the glasses of the Sheikh, his pen, his visiting cards. And then I started to just like, you know, to, to think about it. I went there for two months. Was, uh, it was my habit to, when, when I went uh, to any archive to, to get a laptop and a scanner. And my little brother, who is now not little anymore, was helping me scanning it. And I have organized the archive. It was 1,500 more or less letters. And this expands on the network we know, the official network we know on Manar, you find many other people who are less known in the magazine. Uh, from high class Muslim intellectuals to normal, I mean, just readers of Al-Manar. We are talking about almost 5,000 documents. Oh, extraordinary number. The diaries, the letters, uh, financial and administration staff, 
دار الدعوه والارشاد دوكيومنتس هيز سيمينري فور تريننج مسلم ميشنريز سو سو ريلي ريلي ا مارفلوس اكاونت اي مين جاست اماونت اوف اركايفز ويتش ريفليكتد اون ريدوس انفورمال نتورك Uh, besides sustaining for sure the, the formal network. But what is interesting that this archive in particular has led me to other archives of Reda's network uh, in Germany, one, in Morocco. And, and this, this is actually back to your question. If we uh, sift out this archive, we can trace some of Reda's sources of knowledge. First of all, he depended on the translation movement in Arab journals, which followed these Western debates about religion, society, scriptures, and Rida were just feeding up his, his knowledge from this huge movement of translations in, in Arab press, especially among Syrian Christians uh, who migrated to Egypt and uh, were following these scientific and, 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 and social and religious debates in Europe, translating them into, into Arabic. This is one. And his network, his network either in, in the West or in, uh, in the Arab Middle East. Uh, and here, here I should I should emphasize uh, the role of somebody regarding Christianity, uh, whose name is Dr. Muhammad Tawfiq Sidqi. Uh, Tawfiq Sidqi is was Rashid Ridas uh, uh, GP. He was his his uh, family doctor, uh, family medical doctor. Um, he uh, graduated in the Faculty of Medicine of the School of Medicine, medical school at this time. And, and in, during his study of medicine, he doubted his religion, as he said. He started to doubt the validity of Islam because of his scientific reading of, of, of you know, the human body. Um, interestingly, in the network of this Tawfiq Sadqi, we have a Coptic uh, uh, um, classmate whose name is Abdul Ibrahim, by the way. This Abdul Ibrahim converted to Islam and his brother became a professor of Islamic economics at Al-Azhar. So this is very, very interesting. But he, 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 both of them, they doubted, Abdul Ibrahim doubted Christianity, Muhammad Tawfiq Sadqi doubted Islam, and they went to Rashid Rida, and Rashid Rida claimed that he saved them, he rescued them both. But what you see, I contacted the family of Abdul Ibrahim, they sent me really fascinating pictures Uh, also, the, the, the grandson of Tawfiq Sidqi sent me really pictures and, and things with his handwriting. And you see these post figures were very, very important in the uh, image of Rashid, of Rashid Rida about, about uh, Christianity, because Rida did not have any knowledge of Western languages. Like, if you, if you remember, and you, are, you, are, you have also uh, touched upon that, that the well-known Qayranawi funder debate in India that Qayranawi depended on... I mean, the students, Indian students are studying medical sciences in England to get knowledge about the higher biblical criticism. It was the same method which Riva used also, to use some of those students who had uh, good knowledge of, of, of Western languages in order to translate for him such things. And Tawfiq Sidqi started to translate some of these higher and lower and popular works against Christianity to Riva, which he used in his polemics. So, but, but here we have to, 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 think, to, to, to think about something that Tawfiq Sidqi was not only attacking Christianity, but he was also critical to some Islamic concepts which Rida allowed him to write them out, especially the authenticity of hadith. You see that Muhammad Tawfiq Sidqi is writing a series of articles which Rida allowed to be published in Al-Manar, I mean, just on the responsibility of Sidqi, uh, under the title Al-Islam huwa al-Quran wahda. Islam is only the Quran. And you see Quranists, those, those group of Quranists are just dwelling on Sidqi's ideas. And the, 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 the interesting thing, yeah. And, and these Quranists, these are a group among the many sort of Muslim reformists that emerge in the 19th, particularly 20th century, who reject most of Islamic tradition, even reject the Hadith and Islamic law, or at least the consensus of early legal opinions to say, Islam, as you say, is only the Quran. So the, this is a, a very, if you like, kind of radical form of, of Muslim reform that emerges in this period. Yes, and, and, and the whole idea of these Quranists, uh, say, say Ahmad Khan in India was just of that opinion. Uh, Tawfiq Sidqi did not reject the authenticity of Hadith in its entirety, but he was very critical to, to some of, for example, and just that it, it, the whole debate went on one Hadith, which is known as Hadith Zubada, the Hadith of the Fly. 
in which the prophet was reported to have said, uh, when a fly falls in your drink, just immerse it, immerse it, immerse it in your tea because one wing has the, 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 the sickness and the other wing has the, the, the disease. For him as a doctor, he could not swallow such, such a hadith. He said, this is against, first of all, the etiquette with the, which we know that the prophet had. It's against any hygienic measures you can imagine in your life. It's nonsense that a wing of the fly has a cure and one has the, the disease. So on the basis of that, this hadith of Dubaba is actually unacceptable for me. And for him, this was his method. Therefore, he started to reflect on the idea of the authenticity of hadith. We have to measure it according to the rationality, according to science. And here, therefore, Quran is the only text that has been uh, narrated with this strong chain of authenticity and tawatur and isnad and all these things. But the hadith, we could be critical to it without falling outside. The religion. So this is actually it, what is surprising here that Rashid Allah said, it's not my opinion, it's the opinion of self and I invite Muslim scholars to react. And you see that there were also reactions to, to Sidqi from, from some uh, uh, traditional circles of Al-Azhar. And, and so here, what, what I say, I mean, just you see this, the whole debate against Christianity was also coupled by many interesting reformist debates. But one thing we have to, to, to understand when Redad Wills from the Western debates about Christianity in the West, he's also not only reacting to the writings of missionaries by using the Western word, but he's internally also reacted to Muslim doubters because he's saying, be careful because Europe on the one hand is detaching itself from religion and this is the result. And this is why, why Christianity is, is falling, but it does not mean that Europe has been de-Christianized. Europe is still Christian. And you should not fall into the trap that Europe has been become atheistic and, and we should follow Europe. There are so many subtle and significant points you've made there. Um, I mean, beginning with this idea of, of, of Ridda as a, as a global mufti, uh, as, as you and others have, have called him. And, and this is a really kind of useful concept because a, a mufti is someone who, uh, who makes fatwas and a fatwa is a legal opinion. So in a sense, what we're looking with a, a global mufti is a global opinion maker. And that's exactly what Ridder was doing through, through his journal, Al-Manal, which, as you've noted, was published into many, translated into many other languages as well. And this sense as, as well of, of, of all of his correspondence and letters, you mentioned 5,000 letters that, you know, that made me think of the figure from... Uh, 1,500, 5,000 documents a whole. Oh, sorry, okay, yeah, 1,500 letters. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. Uh, that's still a lot more than the number of fatwas. I think there are 1,060 yeah. fatwas in Al-Manar as well. So this yeah, kind of yeah. mailing list, as it were, that he has really gives us a sense. But, but by the way, it's not the whole archive. Yeah. Right, okay, just, a, just yeah. a, a fraction of it, yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's really giving us a sense of the reach of, of his opinions. But the other very important point, series of points you've been making is, is, is the the sense in which the, this print sphere and translational sphere, this public sphere that we have uh, emerging in the 19th, early 20th century, through translations and so many interactions between European Christian missionaries, European scientists, Darwin and others are being translated mm -hmm. in, into, into Arabic. Um, and of course, this is also the period of, of whether internally driven or externally stimulated, Muslim reforms and many Muslim critics and often very serious critics of Islam or at least the forms of Islam that have been practiced by Muslims for centuries, including, of course, Ridda as a Muslim reformist. And that's kind of really important, isn't it? Because Ridda is a, a critic of Christianity, but he's also a great critic of, of, yeah. of, of, of Islam as it's been practiced for centuries and indeed of other Muslims. Perhaps a, a couple of examples of the the kinds of sources from from Europe that uh, that Ridder was having translated for him, and which he was to which he was responding. Yeah. I could talk of two interesting examples. One in the beginning of Ridder's career as a print writer, and the second at the end of his career in in, in the uh, mid thirties uh, or just before his death. The first one, which was a, a very huge debate in Europe in 1902, 
which was known under in German the Babel und Bibelstreit, the Babel und the Bible controversy, in which uh, a German archaeologist and Bible scholar uh, Friedrich Delitz has discovered, uh, you know, that the Stone of Hammurabi uh, carries some similarities between the, teen, the Hammurabi and the Ten Commandments. So he made these archaeological discoveries connecting it to the biblical stories, which is, has become known method also in European scholarship on the Bible from the late 19th century onwards. And Arab newspapers were talking, were just like, you know, translating this debate, you know, talking about it, I mean, just how come. And Reda took this, put it in Al-Manar and reflected on it, writing it, Zilzalun fi Europa, an earthquake, and a quake in Europe. Christianity is that. Uh, look, missionaries, what, what your own scholars are saying about Christianity. And they started to dwell on that, to say, okay, this is what is going on. This is what Muslim scholars have said all the way about this idea of, of uh, alteration of the Bible, of corruption of the Bible. And this is what is proved in the basis of archaeological uh, uh, discoveries. What was for Rida very interesting, the involvement of Kaiser II, uh, William II, uh, uh, in, in the debate, because he invited Dalich to his palace in order to talk about the Bible in Bible's child. And here, the Kaiser himself commented on the whole controversy. But Frida was annoyed that the Kaiser, in his communication about this controversy, ignored Islam, because he's mentioning all those great prophets, uh, mentioning Martin Luther, mentioning all those European Napoleon Bonaparte in his, you know, reflection on the discoveries and thinking and rationality, but he ignored Islam and the Prophet Muhammad entirely. And he said, yeah, but this William II, the one who, who visited the, the Sultan just a few years earlier, is now in the debate, does not involve Islam. In that. And you see him, you know, reflecting on that. And this was for me very interesting. I mean, just like, you know, that, that this debate, which was translated in Arab newspapers and Reda took, took up in order to, to prove his point about the authenticity of Islam. This one from his early career. The second one, which is on a different level, which was his responses to uh, Orientalists, especially to the Dutch Orientalist and Arabist Arendt Jan Vincent. Arendt Jan Vincent was uh, a Dutch uh, Semitic scholar, scholar of Semitic uh, languages. He is a student of Snuko Kronje, the well-known Dutch scholar who traveled to Mecca and entered Mecca, converted to Islam between brackets. Um, Arendt Jan Vincent was an armchair scholar. He was a scholar of Hadith. He traveled to the East. His, even his concordance was translated into Arabic by uh, one of Riba's associates, uh, Fuad Abdel Baqi. So he was a very... My impression about him is very calm man, just like, you know, sitting with all these cars about the concordance of Hadith. But he was much interested in, in the early history of Islam, Jews in Medina, you know, the, the Hadith uh, scholarship. But he was also the editor-in-chief of the Encyclopedia of Islam. You, you know, if you are in an editor, editorial board of an encyclopedia, we, we have been through that, and you are looking for colleagues to, to write entries and you don't find them, what to do? You write them yourself. <laughs> you write them yourself. <laughs> and it's important, if I just interrupt, Ahmed, I mean, just to clarify for, for listeners who, who perhaps aren't scholars of Islam, the Encyclopedia of Islam is, is the, still to this day, in its various versions, the primary sure. research tool for Islamic studies. It's the Encyclopedia sure. Britannica of the Islamic yeah. world. Of, of its uh, and you have Wikipedia and everything, you know. Okay. Yeah, Encyclopedia of Islam 1 and 2, and they are busy now writing 3. Yeah. So, but, <laughs> anyhow, but just that, it's very, thank you for the clarification, but you see here that Arendt Young Vincent, the editor of the Encyclopedia of Islam 1, the first edition, uh, he wrote almost 80 lemmas. But what to his bad luck in that year, in 1933, there were two things happening. First of all, the initiation of a translation of the Encyclopedia of Islam into Arabic. And the second is his appointment as a member of the Royal Academy of the Arabic Language in Cairo. It happened both in the same month. Mm. So a royal decree has been issued to appoint five Orientals, including Arantian Vincent. It was Massillon, 
uh, and then uh, uh, Fisher, uh, uh, Nalino, and uh, Gip, and Vincent. Five Orientalists were appointed as members of this Royal Academy. So a royal decree has been issued to appoint Arndt Young Vincent among these five Orientalists to this academy. But in the same weeks, in the same month, the Encyclopedia of Islam was or the first lemmas were translated into Arabic. And you can imagine what he has written is actually about Ibrahim. Lemma about Ibrahim, Aleph or Ba. So it was the first lemma to be translated into Arabic. And here he summed the ideas of his teacher, Snukukhronia, about the figure of Abraham as in the beginning of Islam, Ibrahim was merely a prophet. But Muhammad, in his conflict with the Jews, tried to show Ibrahim as the arch, the arch prophet, the bigger, the founder of Islam. This is the argument of Snukufunia, which has been criticized later by many historians, but he, this was his dissertation, which he has never translated into English. It remained in Dutch till the end of his life, because he knew the sensitivity of his ideas in the Muslim world, and he never translated them. But the, the, the Arantian Vincent, to his bad unluck, of bad luck, sorry, to his bad luck, he used some of these ideas of his teacher, he put it in the Encyclopedia of Islam. It has been translated into Arabic, and it was the end of his membership. A huge campaign against him uh, were, were just, and you see Rida here, in this particular case, is very ambivalent. On the one hand, he's appreciating Vincent as a great scholar of Hadith. He's even saying, he wrote an introduction to the Arabic translation of his concordance. He said, if I had discovered this concordance in my student year, it would have saved me three quarters of my life. He appreciated him, but on the other hand, no, this is also very, very sensitive. The whole idea of being that the figure of Abraham is just like, you know, invented by Muhammad in a political conflict. This is against the whole idea of Quranic revelation uh, from the heaven and all these things. So you see, Rida, he is also involved in the whole discussion. But what is interesting for me to discover in the only remaining diary by Vincent into Dutch in the University of Leiden library, he met Rashid Reda once in Cairo, and he, he <laughs> interestingly, he is describing him in a funny way in Dutch because he attended one of his public lectures in Cairo, and Rashid Reda, at the end of his life, he, he was a bit sick, so he, was, he became fat and he was a bit short, so he's saying, in writing a very, in a caricature way uh, about Rashid Reda, a fat man with uh, short legs. Because he just like, you know, writing very caricature, making caricature of him when he appeared on the podium and all this. So you see, you see that they met and they had also communication. In the archive, you find also some letters by Vincent to Rida and, and vice versa. So here, here you see again, in, 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 in the beginning was a, of his career was a Babel and Bible strike, and then the translation, Arabic translation of the Encyclopedia of Islam in 1933. And that's really helpful because it, it gives us a sense of, of, of the living history, really, of, of these subtle, erudite, scholarly, but also immensely public discussions, really, and debates and, and, and indeed kind of, as, you've, as you mentioned, polemics and apologetics. And this sense then, when I use the word history, I mean history in the sense of it has these ironies and unintended consequences. Biblical archaeology has been established to use use archaeology to be able to prove the the the, the truth claims of, of the Bible, and yet it actually by European archaeologists themselves they managed to undermine various of, of kind of claims of Christianity, which then have this unintended consequence then that can be used to prove the Muslim position that the Old and New Testament have been corrupted, and hence the the need for the same God to send a, a new message. So these various kind of range of, of subtle and, uh, and unintended kind of outcomes. So this bring, brings me to uh, one, of the, one of these other European texts that becomes the basis of, again, unintended consequences, misunderstandings that you've written about in, in your book, which was the, the so-called Gospel of Barnabas. So can you tell us how yeah. Gospel of Barnabas fits into uh, these developments. Yeah, this is one of the most intriguing texts in the relationship between Islam and Christianity. 
because it, it carries in itself some historical facts and myth at the same time. Um, for sure, we don't know the, the original source of this Bible, but what we know is we, that we have two manuscripts, one in Italian, which was discovered in the 18th century in Amsterdam, and the second one in Spanish, which has been discovered in Vienna in, in, in the 70s, in 1970s. And the scholars have studied this two texts and uh, my uh, late professor from Konigsfeld and the second supervisor, Gerard um, Wiegers, he had this argument that this Spanish text has been actually created in the Moriscus. Uh, uh, I mean, just uh, this is inquisition time against Muslims, that Muslims wrote this text in order to prove the, uh, the prophecy of the Prophet Muhammad in a Christian text, and it was widespread in these circles as a, as a kind of internal hidden tools against Christianity in that time. In medieval, late medieval Spain. In late medieval times. But, but anyhow, what we have is these two texts. The, the, the thing that we cannot verify is the following, that there was uh, in, the, in the room of the Pope in medieval times, there was, uh, uh, and this you see on the, on the footnote, on the, on the, on the margin of, of this Italian text, a so-called Fra Marino, just like, you know, he was one of the assistants of the Pope. He found this Bible, this gospel, sorry. And then when he read about it, that it proves the authenticity of the prophethood of the prophet of Islam, uh, and the, the Pope was hiding it, he put it in his sleeves and he ran away and he converted to Islam and he started to publicize the idea. This is what we, what, what you have as a, as a kind of things that we cannot verify. But this is actually very, very interesting. The first one to refer to this Italian manuscript was George Sale in his translation of the Quran. And then after George Sale, you find Al-Qairanawi referring to this copy of the Bible, depending on George Sale. And this is the medical students again in England who translated things for him. So George so, Sale is the, the first English... This is the first one to refer to the Italian yeah. manuscript. Yeah. And then the Italian manuscript was discovered and it is just like, you know, known and, 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 and you know, the Spanish thing. In and, and just to be clear, Amber, the, 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 the sort of the claim or what's purported of this Gospel of Barnabas is this is another Gospel of one of Jesus's followers, isn't it? That's, that's yes. the idea, isn't it? The, yes. As we see, it's only uh, it yes. occurs in this late medieval or even in the sort of early modern period manuscript. Yeah, the significance of the, this gospel is that it claims at a certain moment in some texts that there would come a prophet under the name of Ahmad or Muhammad who would continue the, the preaching of the true religion. This is actually the whole thing. So here you see uh, that, that just like historically you see Al-Qaranawi and then we don't have much about it except in the book of Safwat al-Atibar by, by a Tunisian scholar who referred to it that he saw it in the hands of an Englishman in the late 19th century. And then you find Reda is referring to it in 1903, referring, depending on this Safwat al-Atibar book by the, the Tunisian Muslim scholar. And he's saying it was written in a Himyari script, Himyari from Yemen. This is what Reda says. And then, what is interesting here, in that period, Rida was looking for a true gospel. And he found this essence of the true gospel in the gospel of the Russian philosopher Tolstoy, Leo Tolstoy. Because we know that Tolstoy in the early 19th century, he wrote his own the gospel according to Tolstoy, in which he removed all these miraculous stories about Jesus, his mother and virgin birth and all the miracles he just removed them from the Bible and he collected his own Bible, a uh, gospel, sorry. I'm just, I, I should say gospel because it was only the, the New Testament. And then you see the gospel according to Tolstoy. We have to understand something that the works of Tolstoy, the Russian works were translated into Arabic in Egypt at this time. He was a very well-known philosopher among Arab readers. And Muhammad Abdu had communication with him. They had letter exchange. Tolstoy and Abdu had, had that. So here, he took this and he was aware of the excommunication of, of Tolstoy from the Orthodox Church. And then he said, okay, would this come close to Islam if you remove all these of un-Islamic things and you read the gospel according to Tolstoy, you can say, okay, there are really here resemblances 
with what Islam is saying about Jesus and Mary and, and so forth. So here you have this. And then in 1907, the Italian manuscript is translated into English by two Englishmen, a uh, couple, the Rax family. And the Rax translated into, into English what was interesting for me opening the, 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 the library of Rashid, the private library, I found the original copy which Rida used with the signature of the publisher in England because they were probably exchanging their own publications. So, and Rida is writing just in Arabic that he received this and that and that. And then who came up in the whole debate is a Christian Syrian doctor, Khalil Saada. Khalil Saada is, is a very, very important Syrian nationalist who migrated to South America. His son, Anton Saada, the well-known Syrian uh, nationalist. So for Khalil Saada, he was in Cairo. He was working as a translator, freelance translator for Rida. And then they discussed the idea of translating the English translation of the Bible, of the, the, the Italian text of the gospel into Arabic. And here you have an interesting case because a Muslim and originally Christian, because Khalil Saada is a liberal uh, believer, Freemason, you know, and, and, and liberal thinker would just, for economic reasons, for sure, that the trader had made this agreement with him. But you find a very interesting case, a Muslim reformer and a scholar and a Christian liberal thinker collaborating together in order to publish an Arabic text of this gospel, which has remained up till now one of the main issues between Islam and Christianity in these polemics and apologetics. So, but here you have to make a difference. When Rashid Rida is publishing, this is my own observation after studying this, you find that he's writing into Arabic an Injil Sahih, the true gospel. If you look at this in the first, at the first sight, you think that Rashid Rida is making a claim that it is the true gospel, but Rida is putting the, the Arabic translation of the Italian one. And Rida remained very cautious to speak about the authenticity of this Bible till 1929. In this span of time, Rashid Rida never claimed that it is, he, he is making it clear, this is a historical text, it should be ready for Arabic readers. It says something about the authenticity of Islam, but, and you see that he is publishing the, the, the Arabic text with the Muqaddimat uh, al-Mutarjim, the introduction of the translator, Muqaddimat al-Nashir, and the introduction of the publisher. Studying both, is very illuminating because Khalil Saada never says that it's true gospel, and he never believed in that. But he is making this historical claim that this is a very interesting text. This is we have to Arab readers should 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 make knowledge of that. And you see that Rida, for economic reasons, he published two versions. To my surprise, one for ten piastres without the two introductions, and one for whatever fifteen piastres at this time with the two introductions because of the paper side. But why to translate it with and without, this is something we should critically think about it. But you, you read Al-Manar, you read Tafsir Al-Manar, the Quranic exegesis. And to my big surprise, Al-Manar is silent about this gospel. It is published, it triggers some, something, and then you find in 29, he is reflecting on it in Tafsir Al-Manar and in, in, in Fatwa saying, this is a true gospel. You like it or not, this was a true gospel. Here in that debate, maybe just the last thing I would like to add, I was wondering while I was studying this gospel and the translation of them. The Coptic community is silent. How come? It's, it was it was an, a puzzle for me. Nobody reacts to it. Of the indigenous Egyptian Christian population. Yes, yes, the, nobody reacted to it. But I was just searching in the University of Leiden Library and Barnabas is with S, so I would just Barnabas, 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 nothing comes up. I would just like, you know, by, by accident, I was looking for Barnabas without S. Then I found a booklet which was converted, written by a Muslim convert to Christianity in the Anglican missionary. He was a student of William Timber Gardner, the Anglican missionary in Cairo. He was also the, one of the workers at the uh, uh, missionary library in, in, in Cairo. And he wrote a treatise 
against Rida's publication of this uh, book. And it is an interesting booklet. It's, it's fascinating to read how this convert to Christianity, Muslim convert to Christianity, reacted to Rashid Rida. We have to understand something. Rida, at this time, as a Syrian scholar, was seen by Egyptian nationalists as intruder, like all Syrians. Syrians were duhala, were, and this is what Mustafa Kamal, the Egyptian nationalist, has publicized about them. So Rida was one of those duhala, one of those intruders in, in the Egyptian nationalists. And this convert, Muslim convert to Christianity, he was making this point that who is talking now about, about the gospel, this dakhil, this intruder, and he just criticizing him from a political point of view. And he just made this like, uh, this gospel will be short-lived like an apricot. Because apricot as a, mm -hmm. as, as a tree, it comes only in May, it's very short-lived and it will go away. I think he, he was not right in that, in that perspective, but he wrote like that. This gospel, just to reckon on my word, this is just like, you know, short-lived like an apricot. What is interesting about the, the whole publication, it was financed by some Coptic notables in the south of Egypt. They financed the publication of this. So you see here that there was a dynamic also regarding this gospel. But the gospel, again, remains really the, one of the most important uh, polemical tools in the Muslim Christian debates up till now. And this is so interesting because it's giving us this, 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 this sense that there is this is scholarship. These are the European scholars, Arab scholars, both Christian and, and Muslim. And they're all involved in a sense, the sort of a, a scholarly, uh, often kind of very, very sort of erudite, philological search for truth with a big T, really. So this is sort of yeah. scholarship and religious scholarship that, again, perhaps one of the ironies or, or maybe something more subtle than that, that I can't grasp myself, that that despite, as we've said, there were polemics involved here, inter-religious critiques, but also were sort of, in a sense, a codependence, actually, of Muslims yeah. and Christians yeah. of different yeah. kinds in, in their search for, for truth or affirmation of their own, own religions, and indeed for reform and, and development of their own religions, whether it's Islam yeah. or Christianity. Maybe if I, I would reflect on this very few sentences, I think we should understand this time in the sense of fluidity. It's not black-white. Yeah, thing you have. We have really to understand, and if we reflect on our human interconnections nowadays, with the different ideologies, different things. My reading of that period and the interwar period, there were many fields and sites of collaboration, although they were different. To mention just one interesting example, we know that now the work, the works by Ibn Taymiyyah. Mitaimiya, the most important figure in Puritanist Islam and, you know, all the inspiration source for all these uh, traditional, radical, whatever groups, you know, who has published the first printed version of Fatawa Ibn Taymiyyah? It was a Baha'i scholar, uh -huh. a Baha'i convert, an Azhar, an Azhar Iraqi, Kurdish, Farajallah al-Kurdi, the initiator and the founder of al Marbaid Kurdistan, the publishing house of Kurdistan in Cairo, he is the one who published Fatawa Ibn Taymiyyah and who supported him to get the manuscripts. Sheikh al-Qasimi, Jamal al-Din al-Qasimi in Syria, one of the reformists, the counterpart of Rashid Rida. Rashid Rida was involved in the whole project and he would just say in Al-Manar, وَنَشَرَهُ فَرَجَلَّ الْكُرْدِ الْبَهَائِ so Farajal al-Kurdi al-Baha'i just interested in Ibn Taymiyyah as a Kurdish scholar, by the way, also. This was, has also a message. So I, I, what I, I, I want to make the point that we should not think in blocks or black and white because there is really a huge space of fluidity in the relationship economically, intellectually, and also socially. Yeah, that, that's so important, Ahmed, isn't it? Because what, what actually sort of we need, we, I, th I think we're recognizing, or I hope our readers are recognizing through, through our conversation is that in this period and indeed throughout history and indeed today, neither Islam nor Christianity are kind of fixed entities. They're both, as you say, kind of fluid. They're Christians and Muslims are exploring, reforming, reflecting on developing their own traditions and doing so both critically and, and um, let's say, collegially, you know, kind of through, through kind of shared 
uh, knowledge and the just rediscovering the printing of medieval texts, whether authentic or, 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 mm-hmm. or invented. So whether the 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 spurious Gospel of Barnabas or the um, the the writings of Ibn Taymiyyah, the medieval Syrian, that that were authentic, but of course have been ignored by most medieval Muslims as being, as it were, to kind of too extreme for for want of a better word. Yeah. So as we wrap up, perhaps you can reflect on for us what the legacy today of these debates between Ridder Circle and the the Christian missionaries. Yeah, I, I think I would like to put this argument in general, and then specifically when it comes to Islam and Christianity uh, uh, in Ridder's time and later. Uh, I think we have to understand Ridder and Al Manar on the fault line of what comes as Islamist groups in whatever sense from the radical to the middle way. So he was on that fault line. We have mentioned Hassan al-Banna and he was in the middle of the whole debate, but you have to understand that Rida, his ideas were shattered in the 30s among two groups. One, on the one hand, the Muslim Brotherhood in its uh, approach to politics, uh, believing in democracy, being part uh, and also sometimes victim and sometimes uh, attacker of the question of democracy. And we know this in the Arab Spring, what, what, what was the fate of the Muslim Brotherhood uh, at the end of the, of the day. And then you have the, a bit, uh, let's put it a bit radical, a bit, a bit literalist group. And you see this also in the polarization of Islamism in, 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 the, in the, the whole spectrum of Islamism in the 40s, 50s and later. You have uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, you have uh, the the more uh, literalist, Wahhabi, Puritanist interpretation of Islam, which comes also from that that school. And you have also the jihadi, radical groups, which which up till now very visible also in in, in Muslim militant politics. So all of that is... it's, it's very, very also reductionist and naive to say Rida is the cause of. I don't agree with this, with this paradigm that he is the cause of what we, we have. And this is, you see, in political reports, in CIA reports, in intelligence service reports, always we start from Afghani, Abdul, and Rida, and then come all the, the crises we have witnessed in the Muslim. I don't agree with this reductionist idea. But as a historical fact, it, it, the whole idea, the whole Islamist project was shattered uh, uh, after that. This is what, regarding Islam and Christianity, I think if you browse the internet and you try to make a comparison with some of these ideas, you see that uh, answering Islam and answering Christianity as websites, they are just like copying from each other. But I think Reda's contribution as a continuation of Qairanawis argument and method by using these biblical criticism works in order to counterattack against Christianity. This was a method which Rida applied, and you find it later also in many uh, uh, critiques of Muslim Muslim scholars from the 60s up till, up till nowadays, and in the internet era, uh, what, what I've said, uh, just I needed to repeat it, but you see that he is widely quoted. The Gospel of Barnabas comes again in, 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 in the debates, hence and forth, between Islam and Christianity. Professor Omar Amr Riyad, thank you so much for talking to us in Akbar's chamber. Thank you so much, Nayel. It was great. Thank you so much. Da 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 da